Let's pray. Lord, we give you our time together as we engage your word, as we pursue your kingdom. Lord, remove all obstacles in our hearts, in our lives, in our expectations, in our wants, in our desires, and even me as a presenter, Lord, that we can just hear your heart and your word straight for what it is, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series, Illustrate. And Illustrate is this series that we've been in, studying the parables of the kingdom that Jesus taught. And we're hoping to get some glimpses of what the kingdom of God is. And we've been saying that Illustrate is our Sunday morning series, exploring the parables that Jesus used to illustrate for us the realities and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God so we can embody what life in the kingdom should Looked like. As we've been studying throughout this series, I have been defining the kingdom of God in this way as the rule and reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday life. I think that's important for us to understand. So I've been saying it twice each week, and I'm going to say it again. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday life. We, as followers of Jesus, know the reign of God and his manifestation in our world because we have the Holy Spirit. So we celebrate this morning that we are followers of Jesus who know his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are pushing in to know more of his kingdom through knowing more of the Holy Spirit. I invite you to open your Bible with me to Matthew 18. 10 through 14. The last parables we've kind of looked at took place in Matthew 13, where Jesus was staying with some of his disciples in a house. They kind of found the crowds were still following him, so he addressed them from a boat and looked over a cove. However, a lot has taken place since Matthew 13 to where Jesus begins to tell parables again according to Matthew's narrative in Matthew 18. Jesus has traveled continually throughout the area, preaching, teaching, healing, and proclaiming what he calls the gospel of the kingdom. The authorities have started to kind of converge on Jesus, and John the Baptist has been beheaded. Additionally, the Pharisees have upped their game and really trying to trap Jesus with questions that they know there are no answers to. And anticipation grows at every corner as the crowds and the teachers begin to demand more and more of Jesus. And following Matthew's narrative, Jesus has just taken his disciples to the mountainside to pray, knowing that his time is coming. He's beginning to prepare them and He enters the mountainside in prayer, and it's there again that we see God speak the same affirmation over him that he did at the beginning of his journey. This is my son, whom I am well pleased. Now, Peter witnesses that moment, and in it he sees that Jesus' face begins to catch some of God's glory. And we call this the transfiguration. It's a big, funny word just to say that for a minute he was transformed in God's rule and reign as it manifested itself. He was transformed. He he began to glow with the presence of God. However, they come down the mountainside. Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about what you saw. 
And he continues to heal, to teach, and to talk about his looming death. His disciples, as Jesus is beginning to process this with him, do what they do best. They begin to argue about their favorite argument. Who's going to be the greatest? How do we be the greatest? What does it mean to be the greatest? So, as Jesus hears them, he picks up a small child. Luckily, there's no small children near me I can pick up right now. And he picks up a small child, and he kind of puts it in the midst of where they're sitting. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he kind of just picks up this kid. I imagine it's like a disciple's kid or something. And he picks it up and puts it in their midst. And he says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, if you want to know what it means to be the greatest, you got to become like this. This is the model of what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then he says, and let me tell you, if any of you would hurt one of these, least of these things in my kingdom, this thing that is the greatest in the kingdom, this child, if one of you would hurt this, the consequences are of the gravest for you. This is what's important to me, Jesus says. And then he goes on to tell them that, hey, you need to be careful about how you cause other people to sin and your sin, that if something's causing you to sin, you should cut it off and just live to me fully on abandoned. Just surrender yourselves in living to me. And that's where we pick up this story, the context of Jesus telling this parable of the sheep. Now, to be fair, Luke, another follower of Jesus, also records this parable. He also tells the parable of the sheep. And it's his story that we tend to read more than not. But there's some completely different pieces to it. The gist is the same. But if we would hold them comparatively, there is a lot of difference between the two of them. Most likely, it's my belief and many others that Jesus told this same parable many times to alliterate the same point, but to different means. So we find differences in Luke's account than Matthew's account because Jesus is using the parable to talk about what it means to be focused on the marginalized here, where in Luke's account he's talking more about what it means to pursue after people and experience the Father's joy. This morning we focus, though, on Matthew's account. Jesus has just picked up a child and elevated him in the kingdom. Children were needy and of little importance in this time. They were, to be, they were to be seen but not heard. In that way, we might have even called them marginalized or despised. So remember that as the background to this story as we read from Matthew 18, 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one who has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This story, this short parable Jesus talks about, as he picks up this child and goes into this story, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. These things that you despise are marginalized in your culture. See, you don't do that because it's them that the 
Angel, that, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, this is a verse that we don't talk about often. What do you mean they got angels? Right? What do you mean that they get to see the kingdom of God, that they get to see the face of heaven? Now, we're not going to dissect all of that this morning, but this is one of those verses that I think would do us justice to explore at a deeper level in the church. Those who are marginalized are actually more likely the ones who see the face of the kingdom. Now, it's important to understand a few things about what Jesus is doing in this parable. And for three of those, I'm going to turn to Klein Snodgrass, who writes in his book, The Stories of Intent. Listen, shepherding, this is the first one, shepherding was a despised trade. In the whole world, you found no occupation more despised than the shepherd, who all his days walks about with his staff and his pouch. Yet David presumed to call the Holy One, blessed be he, as shepherd. So in the time of Jesus, there was no job that was more joked about or laughed about or looked down upon than shepherding. But it's intention because David, this guy that every Jew looks at as kind of a hero and he believes that when the Messiah comes back, he'll mirror David. David calls God, the coming Messiah, a shepherd. So it lives in this kind of tension. Secondly, besides the evidence of the New Testament, the Pharisee refusal to associate with Sinners is reflected in various sayings. So we all know that Pharisees didn't like to hang out with people. They like to kind of stay holy and stay away from everyone. <coughs> but that's not just something we know from Jesus' teaching. We actually know this to be true because at the time there are Jewish writings telling people to be this way. Listen to uh, Mekhlita Amalek, all right? Let a man never associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. Well, that's a strong language. The Torah, the scriptures of their day. Jesus is kind of refuting this as he tells this story. Because at the time, Jewish people believed that they shouldn't even associate with somebody of lower statue, of somebody who is a sinner, even if they were trying to bring them back into the fold. You were supposed to avoid them. So Jesus begins to turn that kind of idea on his head as he told this story. And third, the thing I want to tell you about is the parable is to say this. That if we would kind of modernize what Jesus is saying through the parable, it's this. My association with sinners is like that of the circumstance of a shepherd recovering a lost sheep and happily rejoicing with friends over the recovery. Through this short parable, one that we tell our children, one we know so well, Jesus begins to turn all, of its, all the culture around him on its head. Now, this is one of the most well-known parables of Jesus, and it's probably one of the simplest. It's just the story, a small story of that, of a shepherd who's lost a sheep, and he goes to look for it, he finds it, and he's happy. Now, as I said, at the time, shepherds were not looked upon as highly valuable to society. Neither were children. Do you see the correlation Jesus went into with this parable? Shepherds were overlooked, and children were often ignored. Shepherds were kind of the funny or slower members of society. Children were to be seen but not heard. 
Sometimes shepherds were also children, too, and so there's kind of a play on that. However, despite their marginalized presence, shepherds were seen everywhere. Sheep were a big and integral part of society. Another big reality of the Judean countryside in which they lived was lost sheep. While they all laughed at shepherds, they all made fun of them, it wasn't really a position they had highly uh, astute in their mind. Likewise, though, they all knew what it means to have a lost sheep because a lot of them owned sheep. In the time of Jesus, it was common not to be a shepherd, but to own sheep. And so when shepherds would take care of sheep, they weren't just taking care of sheep for a farmer. It wasn't like, hey, these are John's sheep, these are Lou's sheep. Really what is happening there is these shepherds were employed to care for all of the town's sheep. Sheep were used as resources, they were used as sacrifices. Every bits and pieces of them were eaten and used in their everyday life. The land, though, that the town's sheep would be pastured in wasn't this kind of green Lancaster County hillside that we are used to. It was only a few miles across. There weren't fences. There weren't natural walls. And outside of those few miles of grass were deep ravines, rocky gullies. And these things often lured sheep to get lost in their difficult terrain. So at time... There would be two or three shepherds that were called to care for these sheep, for the whole town, and they would get lost. And so it was very common for a shepherd to break off, leave the other two sheep, uh, the other two shepherds with the sheep, and go looking for them. In fact, there are stories in which shepherds have stayed out all night looking for their sheep, found this person's sheep, and brought it back, and the whole town's there like, yay, woo, like, Excited. Meanwhile, the other 99 are already back there and safe. You see, the shepherds had to really care for these flocks because they were other people's investments. They weren't the owners of the sheep. They were only the caretakers of the sheep. They were overseeing people's investments. Now listen to this from William Barclay. The Palestinian shepherds were experts at tracking down their own sheep. They could follow the track of the lost sheep for miles, and they would brave the cliffs and the precipices to bring it back. He goes on to point out that the shepherds also made the most strenuous and most sacrificial efforts to find a lost sheep. It was the rule that if a sheep could not be brought back alive, then at least, if all was possible, its fleece or its bones had to be brought back to prove how it died and that it was dead. It was important for these shepherds to prove what happened to this person's investment due to their neglect or inability to watch that one sheep. And so they had to bring back even what was left of the sheep back to the audience. Now Jesus' disciples and anyone else listening in instantly knew where Jesus was going with this parable. He was fulfilling the promises of God's kingdom and the characters that they knew of, the characteristics they knew of God from the prophets. They knew the prophet Isaiah well. They recited him regularly. And they knew when he wrote, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, no one in that audience and no one in this audience wants to be compared to a lost sheep. 
especially one that's been dumb enough to get lost in kind of the rocky ravine, not safe to be in area. However, Jews, like sheep, found safety in numbers and in community. So being reminded of their humanity, of their brokenness, was not any more comfortable for them as it would be for us to be compared to something like stubborn donkeys or mules. They did not need or want the brokenness of everything laid upon them. They did not think that they needed to be pursued by God because in their opinion, the 99 were doing the best thing. They didn't need to go after that lost one and they should sit there and wait for the return of God. Now God spoke of his own pursuing nature for those who have left the flock even back through the prophet Ezekiel. Listen, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. So here, Jews have thought they're doing pretty good. We're in a community. We're waiting for God. We are the 99. There's strength in numbers. Don't associate with people that have gone off the path. And Jesus tells this parable that re-illustrates something they had forgotten about, something God told them through the prophet Ezekiel. I'm actually the God who pursues. I go after. He goes on in that same interaction with the prophet Ezekiel uh, to say this, warning of his nature Uh, we see this, I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away. And I will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. (coughs) In telling this story, Jesus brings up these images told through the prophets that in his mind, the pursuit of that one was better than the community of the 99. In fact, in a way, he is saying the 99 were the fat and strong that would be fed with the same judgment in which they are measured with. If we were comparing it to Jesus being here, he might say the Christian who is at home right now, scared to be here, is in more importance of our lives and our pursuit than all of us that are gathered here this morning. If anything, those of us who are gathered here this morning are the fat and the strong who will be judged with the same judgment in which they have measured others with. These were actually the sick and the broken. Now, this must have really stuck with Peter, a follower of Jesus, because when he begins to write his own disciples and tell them the things that Jesus taught him, he begins to tell them who the... (coughs) Jeez. (coughs) He begins to tell them who they are so that they will never lose sight of it and become this fat and strong 99. He says, For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. For you were like sheep going astray. Don't forget that. Don't forget who you were. You were that sheep that God pursued. You were never the 99. Don't ever confuse yourself with that. Now, Jesus never intended sheep just to be rescued, but he also intended those sheep to be rescuers. They were never to remain consumers of the fold and become fat and strong. They were to mirror the shepherd himself and to pick up these same characteristics of God that they knew about as kingdom pursuers. Jesus calls the twelve to himself and then he sends them out. Then Jesus calls the seventy to himself and sends them out. And he commands them as he leaves 
to go to the ends of the earth. Likewise, James, the brother of Jesus, gives the early church in which he oversaw and discipled a similar call. My brothers and sisters, James writes, if one of you should wander from the truth, we see the same kind of language as the sheep that wanders. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember that whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Jesus, his brother James, says that it is important that we are invested in finding those sheep that have gone astray, to bring them back into reconciliation. Now in this story, we see that maybe Jesus' most popular illustration, this was Jesus' most popular illustration of who God was and what his love looked like. This parable certainly teaches us a lot about the love of God. First, God's love is an individual love. It's a patient love. It's a seeking love. It's a love that rejoices what others over what others have ignored and overlooked. It's a love that protects by seeking and saving. It's a love that is more focused on what we don't have in our midst. In this story, we see that God is not content with the 99, and neither should we. God is not content with the 99. He wants everyone and everything. God does not take joy until the final sheep is gathered into the safety of his fold. Now, let's be honest. Most of us would look at this sheep and say, you were dumb enough to get yourself lost I'm not pursuing you. I'm not putting myself at risk for you. I mean, he or she did whatever they did to get out to that point. There's no way that it's my job to try to convince them. I'll just kind of sit back, and when they kind of decide that they've hit rock bottom and come back, then I'll welcome them or whatever. We'll do the whole prodigal son thing. We'll have a fellowship meal. But I'm not going out there in pursuit of them. But that's not Jesus' love. That's not how Jesus' kingdom works, and that's exactly why he is telling this parable. In his story, we see that God is not content with, the, with waiting for the sheep to come home. God sought after that person who most of us would have waited to come home. Oh, he or she will figure it out when they hit rock bottom. We'll be here. This is not Jesus' love. He was in pursuit. He wasn't worried about gathering with the 99. He was worried about traversing the countryside, healing and reconciling and ministering to the least of these. Children always have that kind of view that whatever is not with us is better than what is. Right? Jesus picks up a child in the beginning of the story and puts it in the middle and says, Unless you become like this, you're not the greatest in my kingdom. In this story, Jesus went after what was lost, and he embraced it. And this is what Jesus' Jewish audience would have struggled with. This is what they couldn't get. This is a part of the story that would have offended their minds to reveal what was in their hearts. They understood rescuing someone else's sheep because it was an investment. You better get my sheep, shepherd. I understand that. I bought that sheep. You better not lose it. But they could not understand pursuing a stupid person. God would certainly not, in their belief, waste his time doing that. Except that's exactly what Jesus is telling them in his parable. Jesus compares himself 
to a well-known but despised occupation and compared his kingdom to an open-bordered world where people can get in trouble. And he compares his kingdom to something that is in pursuit of people in the midst of that. Now, let's be honest. Our churches look more like the 99, the fold, the consuming fat and strong sheep than the shepherd that we see Jesus talking about in this story. The sheep get measured by what they put out. Now listen to this. Our wars over worship, over dress, over traditions, and minor things are all 99-focused things. Right before Jesus tells this story, he tells them if anything causes them to stumble or someone else to stumble, they should cut it off and throw it out so that they will not find themselves damned to hell. Eternal separation from God. Let our traditions, our minor things, our worship wars, our clothes, these debates we have with each other, be damned to hell rather than us continue to be a consuming sheep of the 99. May we mirror the shepherd more than that of the strong and the fat 99 waiting for their judgment. The 99 love to gaze. They eat it up, but they take no initiative. There's no commitment. They go where they're pulled and they poked probably with a little bit of bang and occasional kicking. Those of you who have herded sheep know that. But they take little meaning in their lives or initiative. I don't want to be that sheep. And I hope you don't want to be that sheep. I don't want it for our church. But unfortunately, most churches, probably our church, do look more like that than the shepherd. To be honest, the lost sheep probably took more initiative than any of those 99 put together. And that's a reality that some people outside of our walls today are probably taking more initiative for the kingdom than all of us put together. That's the point of this story. And it's as offensive to the audience as some of you are offended now. For that reason, this morning, I think there are several notes for us to take away from in this passage. You will find notes on the back side of your bulletin. If you flip it around, I encourage you to follow along and process them later this week. First, God's kingdom is caring and seeking, changing our perception and our treatment of others. And I'm not sure what's going on with the PowerPoint. It seems to be a little out of focus there. Uh, So I apologize for that. But God's kingdom is caring and seeking. It is one that cares. It is one that pursues. And that has to change our perception and our treatment of others. It has to change our perception and our treatment of others. The extent of God's pursuit should bring us confidence and freedom. The extent of God's pursuit should bring us confidence and freedom. See, when Peter heard this parable, he took something different than the rest of them away. He remembered that God is a pursuing God who sought after me when I was way out there. And I want to make sure that my church never forgets that. Guys, you aren't the 99. You're cooler than that. You're actually the sheep that Jesus went after. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. That's who we are. We serve a God who we confidently know is a pursuing God. And so part of this story is an encouragement that we serve a God that no matter what we do is in pursuit of us. However, grace motivates us to be sensitive, knowing God delights in pursuing the marginalized. Remember, he tells this story in the context of some kids. 
who are easily overlooked in their society. Grace, the thing that God gives us through the inbreaking of his kingdom, motivates us to be sensitive, knowing God delights in pursuing the marginalized. As those people that are outside of us this morning, those on the outskirts, the marginal, those that we overlook, those that we despise, those are the sheep Jesus is saying in this parable are who he is in pursuit of. So the next time you find yourselves rising to quick judgment on the way somebody's living, or the way somebody has lived, or the way that somebody believes, or the way that you see somebody not somewhere, realize that you have just taken the place of the 99 rather than the mercy goggles that God gives us. We are to look at those people as the sheep that are yet to be reconciled with so that delight can happen. These truths aren't abstract, but a transformation how we view ourselves, others, and our church lives. These truths aren't abstract. Of course, we know them abstractly. We know God loves us. We know God pursues us. We know he wants us to love those that are different than us. And we know he cares about the marginal. But do we really have a view that changes what we do? When these truths become more than abstract to us, they change the way we view ourselves. I am not healthy. I need a doctor. I need the Messiah. Right? It changes the way we view others. That person isn't sick. They just need reconciliation. It changes the way that we do church. Church isn't about consuming an experience. It isn't about gathering together. It's about being equipped to be part of God's mission in the world. If that is not why you're here, you're here for the wrong reason. If you are not here to find yourself being equipped to be out there, then it's pointless to be here. That's the point of the fold. And through our interactions... Disobedient and insignificant must sense that God desires them. Through our interactions, the disobedient and the insignificant must sense that God desires them. Think about this with me for a minute. Think about the people in your neighborhood, those of you who have friends that are atheists or agnostic or a nun, a person who doesn't associate but it's kind of spiritual. Do they look at you and say, man, when I see Joe, I really know that even though I don't believe in his God, that I believe that his God would be in pursuit of me. How do people around us see you? Do they see you as somebody that is actually a taste of a kingdom that pursues and desires the disobedient and the insignificant? Because that's what this story is. The shepherd went after the disobedient and the insignificant. And like the child, he picked up that sheep in his arms, and it says, and he was moved to delight. Folks, that is what we are to be to others. We are to be moved to being delightful with others. Lastly, joy should find energy in our lives, though through intent that is more outward than inward. We get so hung up on perfecting the church experience. We get so hung up on perfecting kind of what it means to be a community. Oh, we can't be out in the neighborhood. Do we figure out how it means to be us ourselves? And we need to understand what it means to love each other before we can love others. These are Satan's lies. When we learn to be transformed, and the sad part is most of us haven't learned that yet. We're learning it. 
But when we have learned to be transformed by this story, by the intent of God's kingdom, we find ourselves way more worried about what's happening out there than what's happening in here. This becomes secondary. That becomes the mission. One of my favorite things to realize as we bring this to a close and as the worship team comes forward, that when shepherds would carry a staff, there was a hook, but there was also a pointy end. I think some of us this morning, as we hear this story, need that pointy end a little bit more than a hook. We need a reality that we need to be pushed out there in a new paradigm of thinking And some of us maybe need to come in and rest for a while. And for those people, the the shepherd is bringing the hook and bringing the sheep in. I think some of us this morning have probably realized that we have always been more inward focused than outward. And I invite you to confess that in his last song. I think maybe some of the fat and strong need to get lost again to remember who God is. And some of you need confidence in who you are. And I think this is my most important one for you to take away. I think there is some of you here this morning that look at the 99 sheep around you and think, I'm not enough. Because you see how perfect their lives look. They look great in community. And you look at them and you say, they have everything I want. They have something with God that I want. But that is not the point of this story because they don't have something you don't. Don't let Satan lie to you that you are not good enough. He's in pursuit of you, that one person who feels marginalized. He's in pursuit of you, that one person who feels despised or not enough. You are enough, and you don't have to live into being the 99 to be who God's created you to be. Begin with your outward focus today with confidence because God is in pursuit.